Hello, you are listening to episode 36 of Probably Polly. If you're wondering where the familiar starting music is, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do before we begin. This episode was originally recorded as a standalone interview with Louis Aiello. It was in response to a listener question about how to be ethically responsible to those with a neurodivergence that commonly makes non-disabled people nervous. Louis was asked to participate because he is on the autism spectrum and could give a unique voice to what it feels like. In short, we wanted him to speak to his lived experiences and then to evaluate theoretical rules as being helpful or hurtful from his perspective. We also discussed as a group if we should do framing before or after Lewis left, but we were concerned that it would feel disrespectful to do so. On review of that episode, it initially felt successful without an additional frame. However, at least one listener has reached out and indicated that they believe that the episode is potentially problematic and even heavy-handed. On further review, we believe that we were assuming an implicit understanding of much of the frame that not everyone automatically possesses. This will be particularly ironic after you listen to this episode. Therefore, we have decided to add additional content before and after the episode to make it a little bit clearer to everyone. Firstly, Lewis is not polyamorous and not involved in critical advocacies outside of his lived experiences of neurodivergence. We did not attempt to censor or overly control his story because we felt it was important for people to understand the scope of the difficulties he had to face and to him to tell his own story. During the episode, we make reference to other types of oppression, both differing types of disability and racial bias. We picked these two because they either came up during the interviews with Lewis or because we had the most helpful parallel stories in these cases. We could have easily used many other forms of oppression as parallel. They are not meant in any way at all to be any form of comparison or ranking of oppressions. On Probably Polly, we treat all oppression as unacceptable in all cases, period. The very nature of hidden disability means that it is difficult to see and understand, and thus some approach to rendering it visible is necessary. We chose this particular approach partly because it was the one that we could think of, and also as a response to a note in the original listener question which said, and we say this in the episode, felt that they understood what to do in the cases of oppression around either race or gender issues. We responded, if you understand them, then you should be able to understand this. We also acknowledge that the people talking in this episode are all white and that most of us are neurodivergent in some way. Furthermore, we understand there is a history of polyspaces not being particularly safe for POCs and especially black people. It is our goal not to contribute to this, and if you feel we have misstepped on this issue or any issue, please reach out to us and we will correct it as fast as we can. During the episode, I say it is not difficult to render implicit concerns explicit and similar notes. I meant literally no more than once you realize that there is an issue breach, which was implicit, it is not particularly difficult to write an explicit rule to cover it. However, it is exceedingly difficult to create safer spaces, full stop, it's just really difficult to create safer spaces, and especially... (laughs) difficult to create them without any issues. For instance, even this podcast, which we do our best to make a safer space, requires some backstepping like this particular addendum. We do not mean and do not believe that people should be perfect their first time out or first try. We did not mean to browbeat, insult, or otherwise say that people were failing ethically. As we often say, it's all about being a little bit more ethical than you were yesterday. We're simply trying to indicate that adding these steps shouldn't be a great burden to the community that's already on that path. Please recognize that most of this interview is framed by the listener specific question, which relates to a BDSM safer sex space with a focus on ethics and diversity. There are therefore different ethical requirements and burdens on different spaces. For instance, if you have a hiking club, then 
and some of the events will by necessity not be available to everyone with every type of impairment. However, if it's a general interest hiking club, for instance, we would suggest that at least some of the hikes be on paved paths and other accessible options, but there are going to be hiking clubs that are designed for, say, trail running as a hobby or mountain climbing, and these activities set certain BFOQs, which we have previously discussed, but basically translates as legitimate requirements for participation, and that's okay. I hope that frame is helpful for you as you go forward to listen to this episode. Please stay tuned after the episode's close for additional discussion and clarification. Welcome to episode 36 of Probably Polly. As always, I am your host, Michael Hing. Hi. Oh, shh. <clears throat> <laughs> You didn't introduce the podcast. I didn't, just me. We're getting to the important shit. <laughs> Welcome to episode 36 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am the host, Mike. I am your host. Ugh. And take three. <laughs> the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I am your co host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co host, Mandy Conant. Today, we're very lucky to have a special guest with us, my friend Lewis. You want to introduce yourself so yes my name is Louis Aiello I am 34 years old and I was born in Canada and from a very young age I was diagnosed with autism and hidden disabilities are our topic for today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well welcome Louis thank you so much for joining us well, thank you very much for having me you said at a very young age you were diagnosed with autism what age was that I, I was in grade two when I was diagnosed okay my mother she was more concerned about solving the problem like if there was a problem she was more concerned about solving the problem she was always a problem solver ah. but my father he was not that way at all he grew up sort of like an abusive family he was more concerned that there was a problem at all he would always complain that there was a problem and this i think was one of the things the major major conflicts between so uh, but my mom she was like the major major problem solver she pretty much practically raised me on her own almost and she was a very very exhausted and tiring and uh, when i was very young when i went to school there was um problems I wanted to uh, sort of like be with other people, but I did not know how. There was like this, there was a sort of lesson and guide and understanding about how to interact with people, which I did not understand and did not know. And it was not something that I could um, just look up in any book or understand. And it was very difficult. And I mean, uh, it was like uh, stressful trying to mm-hmm. to make people to make people mm-hmm. like work with, to, to, to like people. So one thing that mm-hmm. I thought was interesting is that people seem to laugh whenever I did something sillier. I thought it was because that they liked me. But it turns out that they're not like laughing with me. They're laughing at me. Oh, wow. And it was something that was very difficult because I could not tell the darn difference. And for mm-hmm, a long time, right. that's what it was. And I was bullied when I was a, when I was in school. I mean, I was like a taunted when I was in school. I mean, I, I was like a sort of like it was just very cold in Canada. And one thing that people used to do was used to take my hat off in the winter, like, like my ears exposed to very cold weather, like minus 20 degrees or so forth. And, and, uh, and my ears would get so cold and they would just just throw it around like a hot potato and I couldn't catch it and it was like very, very difficult for me. I mean, people used to um, sort of like call me names uh, and and that was very stressful. And I mean, no one did anything. I mean, I went to tell the teacher and, and nothing was done. I went mm-hmm. to, a, I mean, I went to my mom and there was nothing that she could do. Yeah. Um, and it was very difficult. And uh, I mean... I mean, so it was um, difficult to to find a diagnosis 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 with a uh, with a uh, with autism, but mm-hmm. I needed special help, and sure. so uh, eventually I was transferred to um, T Heritage School, which was a, which was actually a school in the city of um, Edmonton, which is a big, big city. It's like a million yeah. people. It's about the size of of Charlotte, and the big thing about that was is that we had to um, commute every day. I mean, I would get up 
early in the morning that now drive the hour drive to to school oh, wow. every single day my mom worked so hard to uh, to help me one thing that she was was a pharmacist and she somehow felt she was a believer in authority and, and felt that medicines could cure all the ails of the world and she actually thought that I would be very good on medicines like a like a sort of respiratory and and concerta and buspar and all these certain medicines i mean these were medicines that I was on for like many years. I was on Respiridol for, for 19 years of my life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was like very, very difficult. It was difficult for me to, I felt like it had done something to my, uh, to, to my, to my brain. Did you, do you feel like that made it, fo- it made you kind of foggy? Yes, very foggy. But when you're on it for mm-hmm. so long, it became just a normal way of life. A normal yeah. fog, yeah. A normal fog. And you're just there, but you're not. You're a walking zombie. I would assume if it was that long, you decided to get off the medications than yourself. Yes. How old were you when you did that? Okay, so I did that because mom had passed away by that time. Oh, I'm sorry and, to hear uh, So that's, the, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to mention in the beginning, because my father, uh, he, he would always complain about there being problems, and my mom would try to solve them. Eventually, I feel like it, it came back to, uh, to sort of like, how can I say, knock her down. I mean, she was a very strong woman, but she needed my father, and, and my father couldn't help her. And, and my father needed someone to take care of him, and uh, and she could not take care of me and my brother and and my father all at the same time. It just, I think it weared her, weared her down. Uh, she became very, very tired. I believe I, I got off the Respiridol in 2014. How did your life change when you get, got off of the medication? First of all, I was afraid. I was afraid that getting off Makes the medication sense. would make would make my life difficult because I've been on yeah. it for so long and uh, and and it was and and as it was continuing to just deteriorate, uh, it's a function and its use and it became even more stressful. I was afraid that somehow that I uh, I mean I was going to go nuts, but um, I somehow felt that I had to trust myself that I could do this. I actually uh, admitted myself voluntarily to the hospital. And I just said to them, doctors, I said, I was on this medicine for a long, long time. Can you help me get off it? And yes, they did. And I felt like a brand new person. I was reborn. Wow, that was such a powerful move. Yeah. So we get listener questions through a lot of different means. Uh Uh, This one came in through email. And the listener would like to be identified anonymously. So Mm -hmm. they wrote that they are dealing with a local kinks community Uh with, quote, some guys I am not sure how to manage. Uh Uh, She says she was listening through our backlog and heard mentioned at one point in one of our episodes. And Mandy came up with an example of one party being made uncomfortable by the behavior of the other and then getting the explanation that the other person is neurodivergent and having that solve the person's discomfort. Hmm. I am running into these types of situations quite often We have a few community members who are on the autism spectrum Mm -hmm. who have begun to rack up minor complaints from people. The specific complaints she's lining up are puppy dogging, which I think just means sort of following people around all night. Following around, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, I used to do that when I was a child, too, and and sometimes I still do that. (laughs) And then being pushy about getting a phone number, asking personal questions that don't usually get asked in kink spaces, so last names, jobs, etc. And this last one, I don't 100%, I don't know if this is a typo or if this is a BDSM lingo that I'm missing, tying very aggressively in a crowded space. Is that, should that be trying? I, I think trying very aggressively and yeah. That's what I thought too, but I wasn't sure if tying was a, a verb in 
Not that it would fit in that sentence anywhere. Yeah, you'd think it'd be like role play or something, right. like being too aggressive during role play. <laughs> and that doesn't make any sense. Then they say, just these minor violations of social norms and intense fixation on whichever new beautiful young woman is in attendance in the party. Interesting. It sounds to me that they're trying to find a way how to uh, connect with people and not knowing how to do it. So that's something I can understand because, sure. uh, because I mean, for me especially, I mean, I mean, I'm still trying to work on my first girlfriend, and I haven't had my, fir- my first girlfriend. So, I mean, there is this game that's played called a sort of wooing a girl, <laughs> and I don't know how to play it. It's difficult. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, for, for me especially, I mean, I don't know these subtle vo- facial expressions and subtle voice tones, what they're telling me. I mean, what they're saying uh, might be different than what they're telling me body-wise. I'll tell you what, Lewis, it's it's not just neurodivergent people that have problems with that. Yes, that's a very <laughs> apt way to describe it, and I myself struggle with said game. Yeah. But one thing I feel that is also very interesting is that people with Asperger's uh, or autism, they... Um, they sometimes may not know it at all. I mean, they uh, they will understand like certain things, but they they will not get the subtle things. Right. They might get the the main concept. They might know someone's crime, but they may not understand why. It's just very confusing for them. They might somehow feel like someone's angry, and someone might yell at them, but they but they don't know why. And they might somehow feel that uh, that they're angry at them. Because sometimes I feel like people just have bad days, and they yell at me, and uh, and uh, and it's sort of like I feel like oh, oh I didn't mean to upset you. It's sort of idea, and uh, it's sort of difficult for me to to know what what, what exactly uh, what exactly they're trying to tell me. I mean, are they saying are they angry at me, or or are they upset with with something else? I mean, it's just like I used to always say when I was young, all the time. I used to say I'm sorry to everything. I used to say oh. I'm sorry to things which were not even my fault, because because uh, I felt that I had to cover myself if if it was my fault that I that at least I I said I'm sorry even if I. I did not know why. Just in case. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's worth pointing out is that when you're mirroring or reflecting behaviors, and even when you've learned the behaviors that you don't naturally know, doing them intuitively takes about 50 milliseconds, but remembering to do them takes 500. So if someone Mm -hmm. says something that expects like a sympathetic nod and you would do that automatically, then Lewis might do it 10 times later. Right. And that gets read very oddly. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So now my question for the question is, does the listener know that these people in the group are neurodivergent? That they're on the spectrum? Okay, so I don't know that for sure. Okay. They did not say they have self-identified or how they figured this out. They, the listener just thinks that they're on the spectrum. Well, they might know. They didn't say one way or the other. They didn't say, I have diagnosed it or they have told me. Right. Then they go on to note that the complaints are individually mild and don't technically count as rule violations, but with the number of them, then they feel like it's sort of a rules violation somehow. Like it's building up. Right. So like any problematic behavior repetitiously is more problematic is the thought that they're using, I think. Right. Then they say they're struggling to work out their obligations to both parties, and are wondering or are worried that it's a zero-sum game between inclusiveness for some and comfort for others. They say that they've run some thought experiments and can't come up with a coherent answer. In other areas of oppression, such as race, gender, religion, they feel the answer is clear. If the guest is uncomfortable with someone else's blackness, transness, paganism, then it's clear that as the host, you have to prioritize inclusion. But then they say the key sticking point for them here 
is that the person's status as neurodivergent isn't the problem, it's the specific behaviors that they engage in that become problematic. Mm. I guess I'm trying to understand like the, the core of the question here. Is it, I don't know how to solve this? Yeah, I think that they're asking what to do with this situation. So it's more like they're asking for a kind of advice. Yeah, like what's more important, the comfort level of everyone else or the inclusion of someone who's neurodivergent? Okay. And how do you equalize that? Interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. I, I mean, my first question to the listener would be, has anyone approached their persons right there's multiple they said there's a group multiple yeah okay have they approached them and said you know you're making so and so uncomfortable or you're making Mm. when you said this the other night it made some people uncomfortable miscommunication right and i mean i honestly any person that i know on the spectrum in this day and age knows they're on the spectrum and knows like lewis said that they have that misprocess, that disconnect, and that they will absolutely appreciate the feedback. Oh, geez, I didn't realize I was making Mm -hmm. someone feel uncomfortable. I probably shouldn't do that anymore, and they would be more apt to not do it anymore. People with autism and Asperger's, uh, I mean, for me especially, I mean, being honest, telling the truth is a sort of like a normal thing. I mean, you're honest with yourself, you tell the truth. I mean, you don't want to hurt people. You're not thinking about her and people are just saying, oh, well, maybe this person should know this. I mean, but not to take offense to anything that the person's saying. I mean, they're just trying to, they're just trying to give advice. They're just trying to, because I mean, for, for so long, they probably have had the same thing happen to them. People giving them advice, telling them what to do. And, and, and so they just take it to heart and that's how they learn. And so when someone, and when they do it to someone else, it's like, oh my God, why are you so mean to me? Right. My other suggestion would be if, the you said they're a group leader they're like a moderator of some sort right they're i believe so yeah i'm not 100 percent, but i think so Mm -hmm. okay i would see if there's someone in their community that they could go to to be a mentor for these guys that seem to be having some social issues i'm sure there's someone in the community that would be more than happy to step up and kind of mentor them because mononormative society is hard to engage in and then you have this whole other subculture on top that they're trying to dip their toes in i can't even imagine how difficult this must be right for the for these couple guys and if nobody's telling them that what they're doing is not polite or is not normal you know in quotes or not acceptable then they're not going to know that it's not i want to push back on that a little bit and i think now is also a good time to add some terminology So for those of you that don't know, I also have a series of hidden disabilities. I have dyslexia, I spell and punctuate at a fifth grade level. I actually had to go to a socialization class as a child where I played with other non-normative children because I interact in a way that makes people uncomfortable, or did at that time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those suggestions that you just made make me very uncomfortable, and I'll explain why in a minute, but the basic premise I think I think the language is very helpful here which is the language is always evolving but we're going to talk about the gold star language so this is the best possible language you could use to describe ableism versus non-disabled people okay so the preferred term now is non-disabled not able-bodied for people who don't have a disability and there's a couple of good reasons for that I like that the first is my body is fine it's my brain that has some problems so when you have words like able-bodied and people ask me well you're able-bodied right and get very indignant when I say that I have a... I see. 
a more of like a mental disability instead of like a impairment. Physical. Yeah, they're, they're like you're not like you're deaf or you're blind or right. Or you have like one foot, but uh, but something that people can't see. Yeah, people are very good at dealing with those much very difficult disabilities because they can identify with it and they can see it. But That's when it right. comes to people with disability, like for me, when I was in. I mean, when I was in elementary school, we had actually a deaf child that actually was in our class. And it was very interesting because everyone identified with that child. Everyone mm -hmm. identified with this deaf child. Mm -hmm. sure. I mean, they, they, so, but they could not identify with me at all. And somehow it's sort of very interesting. But the deaf child somehow felt that, uh, that he could pick on me as well because mm -hmm. uh, they, they oh. included him in their group. Before they included me. Interesting. It's, yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because, it, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I think because if it's a visible yes. disability, mm -hmm. then, can see it, yes. then people can see it and people can understand it better. That's right. In general, people fear what they don't understand. Well, that's a fact as well. I think that that's the reason that people are more accepting mm -hmm. of visible disabilities than they are non-visible disabilities. To quickly differentiate what disability versus impairment means, impairment is the actual physical or mental condition, and disability is the way in which society disprivileges you for having an impairment. Okay. An impairment is the actual physical or mental condition which you have. Okay. And the disability is... And a disability is the way in which society oppresses you for having an impairment. Okay, I'm good. So, for example, stairs don't exist naturally. So the problem of having a building with a second floor only access with stairs and no elevator for someone who needs a wheelchair is the disability. Uh, okay. The building causes the disability I see. for the person with the impairment. So, okay, I see. Okay. Because if the building had been built with an elevator or a ramp... Right, then there wouldn't be a disability to get to the second... Yeah. Okay. That's right. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that language, Michael. Yes, I appreciate it. And so that's the other reason that we prefer the term non-disabled to describe everyone else as opposed to able-bodied. Because we're not disabled by default. Society is constructed to punish us. Correct, yes. Okay, yeah, all right. And that's going to become really important when we come back to this listener's questions here in a minute. So a lot of the suggestions that Mandy made play into lifelong traumas that these people probably are dealing with. So if you look at studies about people with autism, they face lots of social rejection when they're young. And then as an adult, when they are faced with social rejection, it's harder for them to handle it in the sense of it's painful for them. So having people come up to you and say, you're behaving wrong, you're doing something wrong in this space, mm -hmm. isn't the ideal way to handle it, and it doesn't, shouldn't be the first line of defense. Okay. To be clear, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean for someone to go up and say, you're doing this incorrectly. Mm -hmm. I meant for someone to go up and you know, and be constructive about it. Sure. And but, you, not... but, but you understand that they may not be able to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes. That they'll feel scared of the potentially sad in the space. Well, I mean, people of Asperger's, they, people of autism, I mean, they like things a certain way. They want to do the things their own way. Any other way, uh, it's like a, can be... It's, like, it's foreign. It's, well, exactly. It's traumatizing. It's what? Like, it's, it's, and you're concerned with fairness, right? You don't right. want to be singled out and treated differently than everyone else. Yes, but I mean, right. it's like, um, okay. I mean, if, uh, if somehow, like, for example, for me, especially, I think, I think one great example would be the SATs, for example. The SATs are designed a certain way. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure. for, 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 for me, especially, I mean, I just, I just somehow don't, I mean, I did not really do as well as I, I mean, I could do probably now, but. I mean, it was just like, it was designed a certain way. The e, there was like with the EOGs, the EOCs growing up. I mean, the, all these things, I mean, they were not really designed for, for a, I mean, I, like, right. and also there's um, like the other tests they have, like, uh, like for example, the Jerry's. I mean, I would probably not do well in, in that. I mean, I, I just, I just, 
But I mean, the one thing I felt like as a match was probably another one that I, because I got a book to, uh, to, to, to see if I could um, understand how to do the match and answer the questions and see if I could actually understand the analogies. And I couldn't do it. I could only do it by, by memory. Makes sense. But, but I could not do it by, mm-hmm. by actually just application. The other problem here is, and so I said, I mentioned fairness and construction, mm-hmm. right? So this person is saying that when you make these mistakes repeatedly, mm-hmm. they feel like a rule violation. Well, then it should be a rule. Part of the reason that people with autism are drawn to BDSM and non-monogamous spaces is because they do very well with explicit rules. That the negotiation of contracts, the negotiation of relationship structures actually makes it much easier for them to engage in relationships than the mononormative back and forth of trying to interpret the other person's space. Right. And all four of the rules that she mentioned have a word built into them that indicate you have to be able to read the room. Right, okay. Which people on the spectrum cannot a lot of times. So the word being, quote, pushy about getting a phone number. Well, what's pushy? Right. Pushy to one person is not pushy to another person either. That's true. Everyone's different. Like, like we, I think we have to keep that in, in mind, that pushy is relative. My point is, if there's a level of pushiness around phone numbers mm-hmm. that's a problem, why not just have a rule that says something like, if you ask someone for contact information and they say no, you can't ask again. Don't ask again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they can volunteer it later if they want, but you don't ask for contact information twice. How hard is that to add to the list of rules? Right. I agree, Michael. That is a good method. I like that. The other thing that I noted was fairness, because one problem that you see a lot with your neuroatypical is you see people, air quote, getting away with things. And it, it feels really unfair. So you mm-hmm. ask for a number twice and you get yelled at. But you see some guy ask for a number three, four, five times. And the person thinks it's charming. He's just being persistent, not pushy. Yeah, and gives him the number. Persistence. Yeah. Persistence. And so you see that and you try and copy it. Yeah, that's true mm-hmm. too. Because sometimes mm-hmm. people want you to be pushed, want you to do that. Because yes. it's sort of like, it's like the game. I mean, my, my mother used to, t- my father used to tell me this. My mother used to say, when you, when you, chase, when you chase a girl, she's going to catch you. I mean, sort of like, I don't understand what that meant. My fa- I said to my father, my father said, well, that's the way it is. So the idea is, is that the guy sort of like continues being persistent with the girl. And eventually she, uh, she says, oh, yeah, he, um, he, he, really is, uh, he really is cool. And, uh, yeah, right. It shows him. that you're so that, interested. So you're interested, exactly. But right. the point is that it's difficult these days because, I mean, there's just so many things going on. I mean, people, it seems to me, it's difficult to even approach someone because, because I mean, there's some people that actually feel that if you approach someone and, and, and they might be in their like they might be in their personal space that they would feel like threatened and so forth. It's just like a right. it's like it's very difficult these days for even people to meet people without like, I mean, it's like if you don't know someone, if you talk to them, if you approach them, they would they, they would say, "Why are you talking to me for? You're a total stranger. I don't want to talk to you. Go away. Get away from me." Yeah, I agree. But what I'm mm-hmm. saying is, people are trying to replicate the norms that they think yes. they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Okay. In a space like this that has non-normative rules to begin with, why not just clarify the way you want it to be interacted? Mm-hmm. And then then it's very clear what to do if they do the wrong thing. You don't have yeah. to, right? And, and again, you're not singling them out. You didn't go up to them and say, you need to stop asking people. That guy can keep asking yeah, no. people. You can't keep asking people. That's a really good... You are completely correct, Michael. And, and that is a much better answer than what I gave. Yeah, because you're not singling anyone out, and that's important. Okay, I'm mean, just trying to think about it. So you, that person can continue asking someone out, but you can't. I mean, I just don't feel that would be, they would not consider that to be a, to right, because why Why is it this person can ask 
more people out of these people out and, and, and I can't I mean exactly right. so that, but also that also is a problem too right so I mean it's like mm-hmm. you know because I mean it does seem to me that it's singling up when you said that I felt oh you're singling up person now that's yeah. not that's not, a, that's not good at all so, yeah. right that's a, this is, I feel like that would be a very effective way to approach the the situation let me ask this very specifically Lewis if there was a rule on the door that said you can only ask for contact information once that would be okay for you and you would understand how to do that. Yeah, because then you can, you, you know you can approach the person, and if they say no, that's fine. I mean, it, it's honest. I mean, it's mm-hmm. sincere. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like I... It's like, how can I say, straight to the point sort of idea. I mean, people of Asperger's, that's what people need. I mean, like, sort of like, it seems to be that... Uh, sort of, it's more of a, it's more of like a, sort of, instructional, sort of like a... Yeah. Right. Sort of, the, brain, yes. the, the brains are designed differently. It's, it's, not, it's not like it's... It's differently. I mean, oh. It sort of looks upon the things like a, a book of instructions. And that flip side is something I hadn't even thought of that Lewis just pointed out, is when you have a rule like that, it also eliminates the game playing of pretending a no. So yes. if you yeah. know you can only ask once, when the person says no, you go, okay, that must be genuine, because if they said no, I can't ask them again. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It eliminates for the other people to play that game back, that whole, right. ha no. They know this guy, he can only ask me for my information one time. So if I say sure. no, yeah. like that's it. Yeah. I, I, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so then the next one says, uh, has a similar word, right? You can find it. Asking personal questions that don't, quote, usually get asked. What's usually? And so again, if you have a list of questions you know they can't ask, why don't you just put it on the door and say, no identifying information, no last names, no jobs. If you have that on the door and say, right. these are the questions you can't ask, again, you're not singling anyone out. Everybody gets to know. Yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like a complete and utter ass for the way that I answered the question <laughs> that, I, that I suggested. I mean, I really do because I was. I was I was singling people out right. and that was not the correct way to do that. Like say, please don't ask place of employment, last name, area live. Income. Yeah, unless it's offered. Unless it's offered. Right. Yeah, it can be yeah, offered, but not asked. Sure. So um, if I understand, I, I have an autistic nephew, and I understand that for him, schedule, routine, um, consistency, and uh-huh. structure is very important. So yes. I think yep. that mm-hmm. kind of a theme that I'm that I'm hearing might be effective is simply if there is someone in your group who is um, on the spectrum to uh, that, that might be problematic and and uh, not following some social norms that are normal for that particular group to maybe structure things more. Is that kind of what we're getting at? Yeah, I think I think that's true too because uh, when it comes to people with autism, we need we need like organization. We need our sort of like. A, our schedule. Our schedule is very important. I mean, I mean, so for me especially. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I mean, it's not like I have that anymore. But when I was growing up, I would feel like I have to do certain things a certain way. If I do it a different way, that's not good. I mean, it's more constructive. It's and a, logical, it's, right? It's, it's, it's logical, but it's also familiar. It's very oh, familiar. Okay. So when that someone comes into so familiarity is very important. So when someone walks into a like a room with with understanding that this is going to be a going to keep the sort of those rules there that's something that they can understand Mm -hmm. okay so what i'm saying basically is there are lots of implicit rules that everyone assumes that everyone knows but if it's really a rule Mm -hmm. it should be explicit if you're not trying to disable Mm -hmm. neurodivergent members of your community It it should be written down and if it's not written down that's a problem with the way your rules are structured not a problem with the way that those people are interacting. Yes, that's true. I think that would be very yes. helpful for them. They might us. They actually may actually be beneficial for another reason, and it will make them feel more comfortable. 
right. be more comfortable. They might be able to be more approachable. They won't be as nervous. Mm -hmm. They'll be mm -hmm. they'll be uh, they'll be able to even engage and uh, and show what the good sides and, and all that and and really right. impress people. Maybe that might actually benefit the mm -hmm. everyone else that's there, and it will be a uh, helpful for all of them. And maybe it might be more positive experience. They'll be more knowledgeable of their guidelines going into a conversation. Yes, right. I feel yep. I feel more confident. And when I say yes. better experience, I'm saying that they might actually meet someone. Yes. <laughs> they might actually meet someone and, and after all that time. And connect. And connect. They might make those connections that they've been waiting for. And that's, and that's the success of it all. The point is to meet people. Right. Which is, which is, yeah, that's what I was going to say, which is all that this group of guys is trying to do mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. trying to connect. That's right. Connect. Um, and the, the lack of rules and the long list of implied rules is really disabling them. Yeah, uh, I would I would like to mention that I was once in someone's home. He invited, he didn't, well, I mean, I, I, I took a sort of like a, a room from his, in his house. I rented a room from him. He was like, um, he, he said to me, okay, you can live here and you can just live your life uh, the way how you would at your place or at how you lived. And I felt to myself so what exactly does that mean what are the rules i said he said what do you mean what rules i said what are the rules how, what do you want me what can i do what can i not do so so he told me just to live how i would and so i just that's what i did so once i had a friend over we stayed up late watching tv and he knocked on the door and he, he told him to go because it was like breaking some sort of like unspoken rule that i was not even aware of that existed right. i mean once i uh, once i kept my laundry in, in in the um, in the machine uh, the dryer because I had to go to work and and I just left it in there I'm, I thought to myself oh, well I'll just leave it in there I mean and I'll come home and then I'll take it out and that'll be fun he was angry because I take I kept that from I, I prevented him from using the dryer sort of idea or left, why'd you leave your clothes in there well so I'm feeling to myself what exactly is an issue there I mean why why because this is what you would do in your house that's what I would, I would do I mean, right so, that's yes. what you told me to do right what you told me to do right it's like it was like very difficult for me to understand I mean I said can I just like have a bridge of he said and he said why are you making this more complicated than it should be I mean I felt to myself it's already very complicated for me I felt so I mean I was yeah. trying to simplify it, but for him it was like a it was unnecessary and, uh, and yes. it just bothered him and yet I actually had to leave that place because it was not working out well so I so actually I did uh, find a place where actually I could um, sort of like find, I mean, because I, he did not have to understand me at all, but I had to understand his expectations. I was just going to add that that same dynamic that you're talking about, Lewis, where those expectations have to be spoken and they have to be communicated, mm -hmm. works the exact same way in romantic relationships as well. That's right. Or I say, be explicit, say what you want. So, or written down is good too. I'm a visual learner. Written, sure. written down is good. Writing everything down. I mean, I do appreciate people writing things down for me. All right. So I want to draw a parallel real quick. The listener started off by saying that they know how to deal with this situation in other contexts like racism or religion. And I wanted to draw a parallel for this claim. So Dr. Shannon Sullivan, who's the author of Good White People. Interesting uh, title right there. <laughs> Uh, notes in one of the lectures that I attended that she has students in her classes who will come up and say, I'm not racist. Black people scare me more. But hmm. they'll say, when I look behind me at night and I see a black person, it just scares me more. I don't make a decision or think about it. That's just my natural reaction. I'm not racist. That's an interesting response. I think that's the but conversation where people say, I'm not racist. But if you have a statement behind, I'm not racist, you're racist. Well, that is true. The problem is still explaining to the person why that's a problem. 
So if they feel like that's the natural inclination they were born with, built in, they're not going to feel guilty about it. Well, maybe they don't. Ugh. Maybe they. Maybe it's subconscious. Maybe it's subconscious. They don't even. I mean, know it. you guys are all making that face, but nobody. It's learned. I was reading, it's absolutely yeah, but, learned. Right. But nobody, when I was reading mm-hmm. these complaints, rolled their eyes and went, "Oh, why are they upset that guys are asking them out too much?" You see what I'm saying? Like they don't understand their neurodivergent scenario because they've never learned how to. Right. And so they naturally react negatively and everyone understand you understand that and you have sympathy for that that these women still feel scared in that space and you have a sympathy for that right um I, yes uh, but i don't want to say yes <laughs> i know you don't want to say yes but that's right I, we... I mean i'm just being honest but, <laughs> right but the answer be. is yes and i don't want to feel that way but i've i have seen people be uncomfortable right and i understand it because i i mean i i too have a nephew who's highly autistic high functioning though Mm -hmm. so Uh he's a senior in high school which is why i'm 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 just soaking in everything that lewis is saying and i absolutely love it because i just i want to uh sit here with my nephew and have him listen as well but um (laughs) (laughs) because i've been to a restaurant with preston and Mm -hmm. seen where people were uncomfortable because he was acting a certain way Mm. so beyond the norm so i do understand it and i don't want it to be that way but i but i do understand so to your earlier point if you say but to racism you're a racist you said but to ableism no and i I absolutely i absolutely acknowledge that yeah (laughs) Right. And I don't, like I said, I don't want to be, and I want to change right. that. And I think I think my point is that people have less exposure to neurodivergence in our culture and how to deal with neurodivergence than they have to racism and racial norms. Like, how to not be racist. Right. There's definitely more visibility. There's more attention brought to it. There's more... Um, There's a reason they're called hidden disabilities. Right. Um, and, and you said that people aren't as, as much experience with it or as... As with race. I think they, they just don't know that they do. That's my point, though. Like you said, they're hid- they're called hidden disability or hidden hidden impairments for a reason. <laughs> but so, like some of these people that this professor is talking about come from towns that don't have any black people in them. So right, they have no exposure, and so they're terrified when they're exposed to a black person for the first time. Right, and my point is that in both cases. Those are the same. Because as you're saying, I mean, if you did not have a nephew that had autism, then you probably would not even be speaking to me right now. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'd go, I'd do that far. But, <laughs> but I, I would definitely not understand you as well as I do. Mm-hmm. The experience that I have had with a student is I've had a student that says that they don't, they were a small business owner. And they said that they don't hire or work with people who choose to speak in African-American vernacular English because they can't understand them. Oh, interesting. And they said that why can't they just learn proper English? Right. And so the thing that I had to teach them was there's no such thing as unaccented English. Because he said, why doesn't he use unaccented English? The accent that I speak in, which a lot of people call unaccented English, is known either as the newscaster accent or the Midwestern, Northern Midwest accent. Mm -hmm. Right. So it comes out of like North Dakota area. North Dakota, South Dakota, South Dakota, (laughs) South Dakota. What do I sound like, huh? Then, you know, we started talking about colloquialisms and he said a sentence, well, he was saying that the, the, it isn't even like proper sentence structure. And I tried to explain that 
there's a whole historical precedence for this that when people were kidnapped mm-hmm. from Africa and brought over here, mm-hmm. they didn't teach them English, and so they took English words and put them into the language structure that existed in Africa. And so it's a native lang- uh, language dialect for the people that speak it that has a rich history and a you know very viable history and is just as legitimate of a accent as any other accent in America. There's a great episode of Decoded by MTV that goes into this, and it's amazing, and it can be found online. Obviously, I think most of us see how that's a problem, that that sort of description is problematic. But I wanted to draw the parallel that he was pointing to an actual difficulty that he had. It was hard for him to understand people that had a different accent, and he thought that was a just reason for being bigoted about it. Right. And so that's what the, you know, the listener said, this is causing actual problems. And so I'm not being ableist. This actually is hard for me. And so the big takeaway that I wanted to say is people aren't disabled. These are people with impairments. The construction of society Mm. disables these people by creating social norms, which are punitive for them. There is no meaningful difference between refusing to allow people to speak in their native dialects because of the confusion it creates and banning people with autism from social spaces. The basic name of the game for disability accommodation is what's called reasonable accommodation. If relatively small changes to the system can fix the problem, like posting the rules you actually want, then do it. Then that's what you should do. Mm-hmm. The the episode of Decoded, which is it's actually a YouTube ser- series. I didn't know that that was what it was, but it's put out by MTV. And the episode of Decoded is called "Why Do People Say X Instead of Ask." Lewis, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Your input has been invaluable. There's no way to. Oh. That's, yeah. That's, I don't know that invaluable can be an understatement, but if it can be, it absolutely <laughs> is. Uh, I've learned so much, Lewis. Thank you so much for your time. Well, I appreciate that very much. All right, then. So I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to, um, to speak. Um, I will also let you know that I'm, I'm sort of in, in, the, in the works right now. Um, it'll probably be later next month, but I'm going to start my own podcast. Oh, awesome. So I'm working with a, sort of like an organization called Zapspace, which actually hires people with, uh, with disabilities. It's a thrift shop. And Matthews. Um, but it's going to be about what I feel is like one of the most important things that, that that's in our society that's not being talked about, and that is that people are feeling isolated. People are people are not feeling included, and so if it's a form of it's a form of inclusivity here, uh, and talking about uh, sort of what it's like to live in, in this world where we're just like a this world like there's nothing to live for. So sort of like some people just don't feel that they have a place in this world. They don't have a they don't, they don't have like a form of they don't have a guide. I mean that's one thing that you're talking about. You're talking about guiding you're talking about trying to help people have some sort of like direction and so forth uh, i'm saying that is not just a helpful it is essential to many people's survival and uh, that's what we have been mentioning that's awesome yeah and we will post the link for that when it's up excellent awesome all right thank you lewis mm-hmm. thanks thanks for listening thank you so much okay. bye bye I hope that you enjoyed that episode, as promised in the framing device, where there's going to be some after discussion responding to specific questions that one of our listeners found problematic. This is being recorded two weeks later during the recording session for a later session in which we have Kat from Young and Polly, my co-founder from Young and Polly, joining us. Hey there! As someone else who runs an organization, she's going to help me respond to some of these questions. Firstly, I wanted to credit the concerned listener. He has to be referenced as Greg with he him pronoun. 
He also asked to give a shout out to a series of resources that have affected his thought and shaped his view that made him concerned that some of these structures might be exploitative, specifically of POCs and black culture. And all of these will have links in the podcast now. So down in the description, you can just click on these links, you won't have to look for them. One is Obsidian Tea, a blog by Gray Ruffin that explains elements of black culture. Black and White Styles in Conflict by Thomas Coachman. Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, a book by Rennie Edo Lodge. Again, I apologize if I have messed up anyone's name. He says this one is from a UK-based perspective. And uh, finally, a book, So You Want to Talk About Race. Also... The black folks and elders in the blues and Lindy Hop dance community have put in tremendous amounts of labor and exposed themselves to massive amounts of racism when trying to stand up for blues and Lindy Hops being part of black culture in the face of an overwhelmingly white global community. So those are actually really cool shout outs and a lot of great resources. So go check those out. And now let's look at some of his specific questions. So one of his first ones was that when you're trying to make rules like this explicit, he says it's hard not to end up being infinitely verbose, which is something that we have run into for sure in Young and Polly is trying not to have a seven. 152 page writer document for sure yes (laughs) (laughs) it keeps on growing (laughs) i think everyone in the entire world if you've ever read any contract from anything like the card you get from target figured out that to be really specific and accurate you're going to end up having to get verbose i think what we suggest and what we do is we have sort of a short list of the rules and a long list of the rules Mm -hmm. and the idea is if you read the short list of the rules and you understand, you should be fine with that. And then if you would like to read all of the additional rules, then you can go on and read all the contractual lines that really lay out bit by bit what you have to do. Like currently on the Facebook group that we have, Facebook only allows a certain limit of characters and a certain limit of rules. And so we have those kind of general, be respectful, don't post introduction posts on the regular wall, save it for the introduction feed, that sort of stuff. Whereas then if somebody does want more explicit things, then we have a document for them to go to that does lay it out that maybe not everybody sees. It's Mm -hmm. not really what we point them to first, but it's there and it's available if you want to kind of go through that. Yeah. What we have then basically is we have a link to the dossier of all of our expanded rules with all of their expanded explanations with all of the specific cases we've had to add and all of the in a sense case law that we've developed over the time we've had this organization and then we have the short list of rules for people that don't want a long list of rules right and so people sort of get to choose their level there the next one and i hope this one sort of we already clarified is there are lots of people who feel uncomfortable in spaces with many explicit rules and while that's true i still think that having a short list of rules that are like the small general law like so there's the general category rules and then having an accessible document with all the explicit rules is the best of both worlds in that case for sure i think a lot of the more explicit rules that you might have to put on there so somebody who is more neurotypical would already agree to that and know that it falls under that behavior falls under that which is why like having those kind of separate sort of here's like Cliff's note version of it, and here's the more detailed version, I think makes it accessible to both people. Mm-hmm. One of his questions that I answered in the intro was just that he felt that it was disrespectful when I said it would be easy to make these explicit rules. Right. And I, I accept that. I didn't mean it to be disrespectful, and I know that when you add a difficulty modifier to something and someone feels differently than that, it can be read as basically like, why are you so stupid that you don't know how to do this? And right. that was never my intention to do that. It was more that once you've identified the rule and how 
how to write it, making that change feels like it's a very low level requirement. So like changing from just having an implied rule that clearly everybody, at least in the original test space that we were using in the episode knows where like you're not supposed to ask identifying information as a standard of BDSM communities and just changing it to writing down a list that just says don't ask identifying information. Right. Once you've identified that that's the problem, because I mean, they already had, right? They wrote me a letter and said they keep asking about personal information and there's no rule against that per se, but when you do it a lot, it's a problem. And I'm like, well, then just make a rule against it. That was, it was was very specific to that, like where they'd already identified both the problem and the way to solve it. And I was like, okay, just put those together. And again, it wasn't meant to be insulting to them either. I understand how difficult this is. People who get into creating these spaces, we don't, I mean, I am an exception to this, but generally don't come with, didn't get into it because of their background in managing these kinds of spaces. It's like, it's whether they're trying to create the spaces they want to see in the world and then realize that comes with this massive ethical burden of learning about everything possible. I think that's the important part is that if you are coming into this space is like be open to that and understand that not, there's going to be other people who have different experiences and to I think there's a certain level of openness that you have to have in this if you're really focused on creating a safe space is that ability to listen to other people and say hey yes I did maybe like I, I maybe did say the kind of incorrect thing and here's like going forward this is what I'm going to do about it I think is a key mm-hmm. and then here he notes that he's in a struggling community And he says, sometimes people will walk through the door, see all the neurodivergent folk and just like 180 out and leave. I don't know what the particular complaint is here. I'm assuming it's maybe financial, like we need more people in the space and it it alienates some people. Mm -hmm. But for me, that falls into the same ethical space as if I had a group that had a majority black participants and some white people walked in, saw all the black people and 180 out. I'd just be like, well, cool. (laughs) It's Yeah, right. (laughs) Do you want them there? (laughs) Like... Their, their behavior kind of tells you. And so earlier I said that, you know, I'm not, I am definitely not trying to engage in the oppression Olympics. If you want to decide which oppression you think is worse or better, that's fine. I take the approach that all oppressions are unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so by reference, when I say doing a form of oppression on an access of race would be racist, and then doing the same form of oppression on an access of non-disabled to having an impairment is ableist, I think that's an accurate statement. And then it's up to you to decide if you feel comfortable saying ableism isn't as bad. But I mean, like, that's clearly ableism, right? People walked into the space where like, I don't want to deal with people who are neurodivergent, I'm out. Right. That's ableism at a basic level. And which goes into the next question where he says, there's an analogy where you said we understand X behavior feeling would be racist. So then we can understand that, you know, that same behavior in the alternate context is ableist. And he says he thinks part of the issue is that most people, white people especially, clearly don't understand what is and isn't racist. And as I said before, that was just part of the framing device because the people had written and said, we understand what to do in these contexts. So I was taking them at their word that they do, in fact, understand what to do in those contexts that as organizing leaders, they spent a lot of time studying and understanding how to handle those contexts. If you don't understand those contexts, then yes, you should go and research all of those contexts, not just neurodivergence and hidden disabilities. He feels like the episode said that we as a society have a better understanding of racism than neurodivergence, and so we need to catch up, uh, which sets up an oppression Olympics. I don't think that's necessarily true. As I said earlier, we find all oppression unacceptable. I think the specific unique nature of hidden disabilities is they're hidden. So what they need is help being seen. I mean, obviously, systematic racism has the same problem where it is also hidden and it also needs a lot of help being exposed and made explicit for people who don't register it. In that sense, that kind of work is similar, actually. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, this is actually a really, really important one. We should mention when talking about adding rules that rules in safer spaces are often weaponized against POCs. And that is very true. So you need to be very careful that if you're making rules that they're not rules that are going to be weaponized against POCs that ban behaviors that are not particularly problematic, but are maybe associated with one group or another. Sure. And that's always true of any rule about oppression, though. Right. I was going to say any sort of rule, I think that you you need to look at how it's going to affect every possible person kind of and how it's going to affect especially communities that are disadvantaged. But we, we talked about this before, though, calling out problems that can't be removed is one way to try and help minimize them. So like when you're in a relationship with a power dynamic, you have to constantly bring back the conversation like, hey, there's a power dynamic and that needs to be addressed. So when you're writing these rules, especially if your entire leadership group, for instance, is white, you need to be like, OK, wait, though, are these rules damaging or dangerous to non-white people? Mm-hmm. So you do need to keep that in mind. That, that does often happen. That behavior acceptability is one way to police a lot of people who are not in the hegemony. OK, so this one, he says the comparing I'm uncomfortable because you are black to I'm uncomfortable because you are behaving in a way that feels threatening to me is complicated because it omits that being black is not just a visible thing but contains a cultural component including a set of behaviors that white people also tend to perceive as more threatening than they actually are. This is why I thought it was such a great comparison actually is that in both cases culturalized behaviors are a lot of what we read as threatening because they're not the behaviors we're used to and they're not actually threatening. So the behaviors that Lewis engages in are non-threatening behaviors in the same way that behaviors that are common to black culture are non-threatening behaviors in many cases that are then read as being overly threatening. His specific example being that black people with visible anger displays are actually less likely to attack you than white people with visible anger displays because of the way that our culture structures visible anger displays differently. And that's true. So I think that's, that's a very good point, but it's one of those things that in both cases people should be supportive on, right? That you should look at if the behavior is really truly harmful and not just if it makes people uncomfortable. So if people walk into the space and go, I'm uncomfortable, you're a neurodivergent, instead of coming into the space and going, I'm uncomfortable because this behavior endangers me in some way, that's a problem. I find this super interesting and super fascinating how you're talking about this because one of my partners is mixed, African-American white, and how he and the way he was raised and the way kind of like his culture and where he comes from, he argues in a different way or may to me sometimes might come off as angry when it's not actually intended to be that at all. I've had to like for the past couple months, like kind of work with him and have a conversation about, okay, so like kind of coming to an understanding of where he's coming from in that and where I'm coming from in my background and having to do that. And I think that's super important, not with one-on-one relationships in a community and like the entire community is being able to understand that and just understand that there's their behavior isn't indicative of anything that you know of until you ask, (laughs) until you understand kind of where they're coming from more. Another really problematic behavior is the problematization of catcalling outside of white cultures that that's acculturated in a lot of other cultures as a non-problematic behavior Mm -hmm. and so then when you see the you know the famous video of the white woman walking around new york getting catcalled by everybody and being like you're terrible you're terrible you're terrible and a lot of the times it's pocs it's in a cultural group and even a cultural space like a you know primarily poc area of town where that's an expected behavior and that they understand that as being positive i saw a really great video that i probably won't be able to find about a, a woman of color talking about how much how comforting it is that people tell her exactly what they want you know that she'll be somewhere and a guy will go hey i want to do this and she'll go oh great well and they can just talk about accurately what i want and what you want instead of a guy going up and going hey do you want to be friends and get coffee when he really wants to have sex with me and that's problem so 
you know, it, it really is a cultural thing that we've been taught that catcalling is super disrespectful. And so for some people that's or that it's scary or that it's leading to dangerous behaviors. So those kind of rules can be weaponized against people because you don't understand the cultural difference in what's being displayed by the response. Mm -hmm. So be very careful about that. Be very open about that. Have discussions. Young and Polly has a we have a policy where anytime any policy people don't like, we have a discussion night about it. Mm -hmm. Let people come out and voice their opinions, tell us what's going on. And we try our best to find a consensus. Greg also felt like I addressed racism and ableism as a personal failure versus a systematic issue. I'd again like to note that the response was a question about how to structure a space from an organizer's perspective. And so it is, in fact, a systematic issue that I was addressing, that your organization is creating a system. And I thought I spent a lot of time talking about how or being disabled is a systematic problem. So the system that creates choices like not making elevators available for people with that need access help is a disabling system. I thought that the, when I structured the language, my goal there was to explain how most racism and ableism is structural. Most oppression is structural at this point. And that's how oppression really survives in a day and age where oppression is not considered acceptable. Most oppression has gone underground. And we've, we've referenced Mill's uh, racial contract concept a few times here as well, which is the idea that racism had a part one and part two. And in part two, you pretend there's no racism, but all the racism is hidden, but still exists. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be true of all forms of oppression now. But just like I say, with recycling and everything else, yes, hold the major companies accountable, but also, you know, do your best. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I don't I mean, I'm not talking, I'm hoping I'm talking to organizers and leaders with this podcast. And I know I am sometimes because a lot of my questions are from organizers and leaders who are having trouble. But I'm also talking to a lot of people who are not organizers and leaders. And if everybody holds their organizers and leaders accountable for creating safer spaces that are fair and non-discriminatory, and they incorporate that into their behavior and their way of thinking, it's going to change the way that spaces manifest. Mm -hmm. Most major changes are actually grassroots changes, not starting at the top downward changes. So when people say things like, we've got to change the system for recycling, I'm like, yeah, we do. But if every single person wanted only goods that were recyclable that came from environmentally conscious companies, it would, that's what would change it faster than anything because then they would be making no money. Finally, he noted that there's a little bit of a quibble with how I approach the African-American vernacular English as being related to slave owners not educating black people in standard English and therefore African grammatical structures being used with English words. He says that his understanding is that is that this explanation is seen as incomplete and some researchers have argued that actually AAVE is more conservative and related to an earlier form of standard English varieties and some of its features than modern standard English but he feels that regardless, pointing it to this way as a lack of education makes it, or rather than a deliberate cultural choice, contributes to the story of it being deficient at best. And I gotta say, I, I guess I never saw the story that way. I would say that whenever I try to learn another language, I actually have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to learn the new grammatical structure, because in my brain, I'm like, my grammar's better, I'm using my grammar with your words. And, and the fact that there's a community that decided to continue using it felt like a cultural pride choice to me. The video that Mandy suggested actually notes all the different origins that are part of the language, and so we didn't get into that because that was not the focus of this episode. We were trying to bring attention, you know, while we were there, bring attention to the fact that you shouldn't look down on AAVE, and I thought that was very specifically stated that my concern was that a student of mine was looking down on it and he should not have. So I apologize if it was seen as somehow being diminishing or diminutive of, of AAVE, but that was absolutely not my intent. I think that's it for the after chat. Thanks, Kat, for helping me out. No problem. I hope this helped clarify people's concerns. And if you have any additional issues with this or any other episode, please always feel free to reach out to us. Have a great day.